0: Hiya, I'm Gabriel. And I'm Alex. You're listening to episode five of Life on the Brink. And this is the episode we're setting our sights on the Regent Honeyeater. They're this medium to small size bird, around 20 to 23 centimetres, or 8 to 9 inches. And they're quite well known in the birding world for their black and yellow coloration. They're black from the head to the chest, and then the rest of them about down to the tail is this black and yellow thing they've got going on. It's a bird that people either know a lot about, or have never
1: heard of before? I was definitely in the latter. <laughs> Until a day or two before we did this interview. Their scientific name is Anthocerea Phrygia. And Alex, did you do your homework on what that means? <laughs> yeah, I think I've done a good enough job.
0: So, Anthocerea, <laughs> don't know how to say it. <laughs> it's good start already. <laughs> means flower or to bloom. Or is derived from the, the Greek word for flower or to bloom. And then Phrygia actually comes from this kingdom in ancient sort of Greece uh, that sits in about what is now Turkey. And I'm pretty sure it's got to do with the fact that um, the whole story about Midas was in that region about the guy who turned everything to gold with touch. Uh-huh. And so I'm pretty sure that's where the name comes from. Because there's a bit of gold
1: in the bird. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. I buy it. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. (laughs) Apparently, these birds used to be pretty much a backyard staple in the suburbs along Australia's east coast until as recently as the 1950s. They'd flock in hundreds, sometimes thousands across their range from Adelaide to Queensland's central coast, but then widespread habitat clearing after the Second World War led to their population crashing to below 300 animals they're still
0: around this number today with only a few hundred left in the wild they're considered critically endangered there are captive breeding programs releasing birds back into the wild but no one really knows if this is actually making a difference to their numbers
1: yeah and then this story came out earlier this year about how region honey eaters are losing their song effectively because there's just so few left out in the wild The young birds have no one left to learn their own song from, so they end up learning the song of other species. And at the time when this research came out, I thought, damn, wouldn't it be cool to talk to the researchers behind this and ask them about how they figured this out and if this is a problem that maybe humans can fix. And bing, bang, boom, we reached out to him
0: (laughs) (laughs) and he said, that sounds fun. So in this episode, we get into what drove these birds to the brink of extinction in such a short amount of time. We're going to listen to the recordings of young honey eaters who are mimicking the calls of different species because there aren't any older birds left to teach them how to sing. And we hear a brutally honest assessment of how
1: likely it is they'll still be around in the future. This is episode five of Life on the Brink featuring the region honey eater and bird ecologist, Dr. Ross Crates. And heads up, there's also one naughty
0: word right at the end of this episode, when Ross gives us possibly the most powerful take-home message we've heard so far on this show.
1: I think what we'll start off with uh, is um, is talking about the region honey eater, because mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, uh, well, it's, it's a bird that people either know really well or don't know at all. So could you start off by just going back to square one and just explaining what they look like, where they're found, and, and we'll go from there?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean... In- on face value, they're they're an absolutely stunning bird. Um, they've got this amazing sort of bright yellow tail and their wings are kind of these amazing sort of um, big flashes of yellow as well. Um, the front of their chest is looks scallop black and white, V-shaped feathers. Um, but the only thing that really lets them down is their faces because they've got these hideous warty faces. <laughs> um, they, they've just, yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't know how to explain it really, but they just, They don't look very nice in the face. Um, (laughs) yeah, I think it's probably some sort of, um, adaptation because obviously they specialize on flowering eucalypts. If you have bare skin around your face, then you you limit the chances of getting fence clogged up with pollen and nectar and whatnot. But, um, it's just kind of resulted in this, um, yeah, better body.
0: (laughs) amazing well that's that's definitely good to know because i uh i'm not gonna lie before before gabe told me we were gonna interview you, i had no idea what a Regent Honey it was
2: <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean there's not a lot of in there. they're amongst the birding community they're kind of they're a bit of a they're they're up there amongst the the, the top species that a lot of people want to see you know um there's people people traveling from all over the world to come to to see them and You'll often get emails. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm coming in a month's time. Where's the best place to see Regent honeyeaters? And I say, well, uh, if you're coming in February, you've basically got no chance. You need to come in August <laughs> or September or whenever it might be. But yeah, there's there's high demand and, and and minimal supply. Yeah,
1: and could you do we have a good idea of the numbers at the moment?
2: Well, it's really tough. It's really tough. Back in the good old days before we chopped down all their habitat. They would have occurred right from sort of Adelaide in, in South Australia, all the way up into sort of Southern central Queensland. Nowadays that they still got a huge range relative to the number of birds we think are out there, but the problem is because they're so sparsely distributed and they've got these nomadic movement patterns that you can't predict where they're going to turn up and individual birds will travel long distances. And so it makes it really hard to actually estimate how many birds are out there. Having said that, our best guess is there's probably between maybe three and 500 birds, possibly fewer these days. There is a little bit of evidence that it's kind of stabilized in the last few years, but that coincides to some extent with where we started our monitoring program. So uh-huh. um, a lot of that stabilization in numbers can be explained by the fact that we are putting much more effort into trying to find these remaining few birds that are left. But yeah, it's, it's ultimately it's guesswork based on sightings and and data and those sorts of things.
1: And where are those three to 500 scattered across
2: these days? Um, the main, the main range is, um, the sort of great blue mountains area. So west of Sydney, mm-hmm. the other, other populations occur in Northern New South Wales, sort of west of Armidale and sort of Northwest of Glen Innes. Um, and then there's a few stragglers that are hang on, hanging on in Queensland and a few in northern Victoria around Chiltern National mm-hmm. Park.
0: So you, you said they were nomadic. Uh, like, do, do they move around a ton? They just move for like all over the sort of state or?
2: Yeah, they've evolved this. Their life history strategy really is it's all really about nectar tracking. There's good evidence that the birds will travel long distances based on color bands. So if you catch a bird, you can put different combinations of colored, small colored bands on their legs. And if those birds are recited, then, you know, it's traveled from A to B And, and, and gum trees or eucalyptus trees, they don't all flower at the same time. So what you find is the birds will be in one place in when those trees are flowering, and they'll move you know, hundreds of kilometers to feed in other trees that are flowering at a different time of the year. So
0: cool um i guess what what are the what are the biggest things that have driven down like driven the numbers so far down and really like reduced reduced their population yeah
2: it's it, it's really a perfect storm of of multiple uh, multiple things that was all triggered really by land clearing so um unfortunately um the the tree species the eucalypt species that the region hunters prefer what they breed in these are the trees that grow on really fertile soils and so, unsurprisingly, they're, they're the trees that have been cleared for agriculture mostly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, loss of habitat for agriculture is, is by far and away the, the main cause of this species decline. Um, on top of that, it's kind of been compounded because what we find is that region honeyters are a bird that they kind of punch above their weight in the sense that they try to feed in these really rich patches of flowering gum trees but they're competing against all these other bigger species like fryer birds and lorikeets and other parrots and red wattlebirds.
0: Hey, cutting in for the first time this episode. So he just mentioned a bunch of different birds there,
1: but if you don't know what any of those birds are, don't stress. I didn't know what a red wattlebird was either. <laughs> the only one that comes back up later is the fryer bird and Ross explains everything about them
0: then. All you need to remember is they're bigger birds and they compete with the Regent honeyeater. Just think of them as bullies. Yeah, (laughs) big bad bullies. All right, let's get back
1: into it.
2: And so back in the good old days, the way they would have kind of accessed these patches would have been through safety in numbers and they would have traveled the landscape in these huge flocks containing hundreds, maybe even thousands of birds. Oh, wow. And they would have just absolutely descended on these patches and dominated them. But now what we find is as the numbers start dropping, their ability to do that, is, um, much diminished and it's in some ways it's like a positive feedback. You know, we call this, um, it's called an alley effect where, where almost counterintuitively you think that if there's fewer birds, there's more resources per per individual. And so breeding success would be better, but these species that have evolved to live in these big groups, they actually have lower survival and lower breeding success in smaller or sparsely distributed populations. And so what we're really worried is happening is that there's kind of this positive feedback where you know but the regional hunters live in smaller groups um they breed less well they survive less well the groups become smaller and smaller and smaller um and yeah it's kind of a bit bit of an extinction vortex unfortunately damn that's a
0: a rough combination of things
2: yeah yeah poor things
0: and so because they are so threatened, what kind of work can actually be done now, and what work is being done at the moment to try and, I guess, prevent them
2: from going extinct? So, there, so Taronga Zoo and the New South Wales government and Victorian government have been running, um, and BirdLife Australia have been running a, a, a captive breeding program for Regent honeyters for over twenty years now, um, and they have been releasing birds into the wild, mostly in Chiltern, but. Uh, National Park in Northern Victoria, which is kind of the southern edge of the species contemporary range at the moment. And so a large focus of conservation effort over the last sort of decade, two decades has been, you know, to to release these birds into the wild. Um, And there is certainly some evidence that that captive bred birds can survive. Um, But the problem is, uh, there's little evidence so far that releasing those birds is actually contributing to the mm. recovery of the population. There's a number of reasons for that, but the main one is to save species. You kind of need to figure out and address the problems that caused the species to decline in the first place. Right. Mm. Um, and unfortunately we haven't really done that with region Huntington's because we haven't addressed the, uh, the declining population paradigm, which is the, the loss of their habitat.
1: Yeah. And so, in that case, is it is it really a matter of they're sort of at the capacity of what they can be at at the moment, and releasing more in is just trying to fill up a filled glass?
2: Um, well, it's interesting because you know we we search for these birds all through. You know, we search like over three hundred thousand square kilometres, and you, we come across sites where the trees are in flower, and there's not many other and You think, oh, we, this is a mm-hmm. generally place they could be, and we get excited that we might find them in these spots. Um, but you don't find it. And so we, we, I wonder and colleagues wonder now whether the population is so small that actually habitat limitation is not, is not a limiting factor to their, hmm. their population recovery anymore. You know, you you'd think that given the vast amount of habitat that's still out there that you would, that maybe, you know, hundred pairs of birds would be able to persist in, in small patches. But again, it comes back to this idea that this is a, a bird that's evolved to live in big groups. Mm. And so, even if the habitat is still there, if they're not living in these groups, then they can't breed and survive as well as they should be.
1: Yeah,
0: cool. Um, we'd love to get a bit more of a background on you. So, I'm I'm really curious. How how did you actually get started in conservation?
2: Um, I guess I've always just, ever since I was a little kid, I've always had an interest in, in wildlife in general, uh, probably started, um, from obviously growing up in the UK, as you can tell from my dodgy accent. Um, <laughs> yeah, my dad would take me fishing when I was a little kid and he'd point out random birds that might be in the landscape. Yeah. I guess once you start noticing birds, you kind of develop this natural curiosity and you realize that this is something different you haven't seen before and you want to know what it is and kind of leads in from there. And I guess it all kind of expanded really when I was 14, um, in the UK, you have this thing called the, the RSPB, which is the Royal, Royal Society for the protection of birds. Mm-hmm. They have like a young ornithologists club. So people in 18 or 16 can subscribe to this magazine and become part of a group of, yeah. Sad young kids that have this interest in birds. <laughs> anyway, my mum found this advert for a young birders course at a place called Sandwich Bay Bird Observatory, which is happened to be just down the road from where we lived in Kent. And she was like, Right, Ross, you're going to this course. As I'm taking you down there. This is going to be great. I'm sure she just wanted to get, get rid of me for a week's piece of fire. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah, we'd turn up and like I made really good friends with a bunch of people that were there. And you know, they're all working in conservation research. And we're still really good mates. And I guess that was the first time that I came across bird banding or bird ringing where you could actually catch birds and hold them in the hand and study them scientifically mm. um, up close and personal. And I guess, yeah, from that point on, fishing took a bit of a back step and I was out <laughs> at the crack of dawn every morning putting mist nets up and, um, yeah, finding out about birds.
1: And so how did you go from that to getting into the research side of things?
2: It was all a bit, I was lucky in a way. So one of the, one of the guys involved with this bird actually that I mentioned down in Sandwich Bay, um, he was about three years older than me. And I took, he, he became a bit of like a mentor for me. Mm-hmm. And he ended up going to, um, University of East Anglia, which is in Norwich. And it's a bit of a bird Mecca, mm-hmm. Norwich, is this county in the east of the UK, and it kind of juts out into the North sea. So it's a really good spot for, for bird watching. And so they have this ecology course and it's got this reputation where if you're interested in birds and you want to do ecology, you end up going to UEA. So <laughs> he did that and I didn't really think about it at all to be honest. I just ended up following in his footsteps. <laughs> And uh, I went for a look around on the open day and realized that the, the campus had this massive fishing lake. And I was just like, this is an absolute dream. <laughs> <laughs> I like, yeah, there's, there, I can roll out of my university halls and, and, and go fishing and then just go <laughs> birding. So yeah, I just did that really. And everything else has kind of fallen into places there. Amazing. <laughs>
0: um, what was the, I guess, what was it that made you get into Regent Honey Eaters?
2: Part of my undergrad, this course that I did at UEA was, the course was titled ecology with a year in Australasia. Hmm. I planned to go to do my exchange year in Darwin. Um, there was a guy in the year above me that went to Darwin for his exchange and we were keeping in touch. And we, uh, I contacted him, I think it must've been in September and I said, oh, how's it going? You know, I'm planning to come out to Darwin this time next year, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh man, it's great, you know, like it's 30 degrees every day, blue sky, <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> I was like, brilliant, absolutely sorted, can't wait. And then I um, contacted him again, and I think it must have been maybe February time uh-huh and i was like oh you still having a good time it's like oh man it's you know it pisses down with rain every day and you can't <laughs> see where you are for flies and mosquitoes and it's so humid and you, you can't go for a swim because of the crocodiles and the box jelly <laughs> <Like>, maybe mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I should uh, change my choice and i ended up changing to i got a, a spot at uh, the university of wollongong uh-huh. oh and yeah i lucked in big time because i was living in the halls with um avid ecologist who was doing his phd at the time and i ended up just tagging along with him um on loads of cool field trips out to new england national park and the south coast and spotlight and yeah it was, it was all a bit of a perfect storm really nice i was
0: just, oh, i'm actually from Wollongong so that's so funny
2: oh I'm oh i <laughs> hey, love <you>. it
0: <laughs> <My God. laughs> i've got a, as, as as a sort of non birder i've never really I've, I've i haven't really had the opportunity to get into it but why like why birds of all the animals is there a particular mm. reason
2: i think i mean they're quite apparent you don't need to be you don't need to have you know you don't need to go to any effort to notice birds in the landscape i think that's part of it so you know in some ways it's it's being a bit of a lazy ecologist if you're interested in birds <laughs> you can just rock up and wherever you are there's guaranteed to be some birds and they'll be flying around and making some noise and um yeah, I think they're just, of all the species that you could study as an ecologist, birds are probably pretty easy to, to get into. I think that's probably <laughs> why many people study them relative to other groups, so, yeah, insects and um, plants and, and whatnot. Yeah. And
0: um, I guess going further on that, why, why region honey it is?
2: Um, To me, again, it was all good luck, really. When I, when I graduated from my undergrad, I, I managed to wrangle a job at Oxford Uni as a research assistant. Um, uh-huh. mostly cause I had a, a bird banding license and they, they were starting a new project. and
3: mm-hmm.
2: I had amazing time for three and a half years in Oxford, basically spending all my time in the woodlands, just catching birds and tagging them with these little RFID tags. And then I think it must've been the fourth winter in Oxford's just absolutely. Just finished me off. Yeah. <laughs> dark, cold, frosty mornings. Mm-hmm. Um, and- for Darwin longing for anywhere <laughs> in Australia at that point in time. And so I got in contact with a, a lady called Naomi Langmore. And I said, you know, like, I'm thinking of coming back for a, for a summer in Australia. Have you got any jobs going as a research assistant or whatever it might be? And she said, yeah, 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 come over, blah, blah, blah. And I spent um, uh, three months in Canberra over the summer, um, swerving in Oxford winter and basically looking for... Superfario nests in Campbell Park in Canberra.
0: We're back again.
1: Do you know what a fairy one is? <laughs> little cute birds, basically. They look like similar to robins, I guess, in a, in a way, but fluffier and with a bit of a waggly tail on the end. There's 10 species across Australia of them. You don't really need to know what they are. They're uh, just cute little colorful birds that birdie people really love studying because they have some really fascinating behaviors and ecology behind them. They're just super adorable. Well worth checking out. (laughs)
2: Um, and at that point in time, I'd actually had a PhD lined up in Edinburgh and I just had this epiphany while I was, while I was in Australia that I just couldn't face another four years of, um, dark, cold winters in, uh, in Scotland. And so I said to Naomi, like, I've just canceled this PhD and, um, Rob Heinson, um, who is my now PhD supervisor and Naomi's um, partner, said, Well, as it happens, I've got some research funds for a project on region honeyters. um, And uh, basically, I, I think that he couldn't find any Australians that were crazy enough to try and do a PhD on, on a bird that people don't even see anymore. <laughs> so I just turned up like, Yeah, if I can get a scholarship, I'm, I'll do it. Yeah, I guess it will just pan out from there, really.
0: Cool. So I guess you sort of lucked into this region. I wouldn't say lucked into, but you, you sort of uh, came into this region Honey, to work, but um, w- why are they important to people on the planet? Would you, would you say? Well,
2: look, it's a really interesting question because I mean, if you say, if you, if you frame that question in terms of if region honey go extinct, what, what's the impact? Probably not really there won't be a major impact because regional eaters, their role in the ecosystem is as pollinators of trees, you know, but there's 20, 30 species of honey eaters that co-occur with regional eaters, mm. And so, you know, if they, if they disappear, there's other species that are still extant that will fulfill their ecological role in the ecosystem.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I guess from a philosophical perspective, um, you know, this is the species that's been on earth for millions of years and, you know, Uh, happily fulfilled their ecological role, you know, for tens of thousands of years with, with indigenous Australians co-occurring. And the only reason they're in such dire trouble is because Europeans have come in and drastically changed the ecosystem so much, you know? Mm. And so I just feel that, well, there's two things really, I suppose the first one is that if they are going to go extinct, we should try and find out as much as we can about them before they go extinct. And the second thing is, yeah, they 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 are still out there. And if there's something that we can find out through our research that could be the difference between saving them and and losing them, then yeah, we should try everything we can while we still have a chance.
1: Just out of interest, from that ecological or ecological perspective, is is there anything that does that similar behaviour of flocking in thousands? Is could there be some sort of unique role in the ecosystem that maybe we don't see anymore?
2: Um, Well. Not really. I guess, there's. I mean, the, the species that springs to mind is the noisy fryer bird. So I don't know if you're familiar with these birds.
1: Hey, it's us. Just quickly, these are the guys from earlier, the
0: big bad bullies. And his description that he's about to give, spot on.
2: They're about three times the size of region. They're they're, they're mm. fairly drab brown. They look like miniature vultures. They've got these <laughs> bare, completely bare heads and evil-looking bright red eyes. and <laughs> There's lots of fry birds around, our ears prick up and think, like oh, there could be regions mixed in amongst them. So they're kind of an indicator of, of where region honeyters occur. And and these birds move around the landscape to the same extent. They all feed on mm-hmm. the same trees. And so um, I think even though they don't roam in huge flocks, they still occur in big numbers when the trees are in flower. And and they would probably fulfill the role that region honeyters would play. Sure.
1: So your PhD then, can you take us through the, you know, the rationale behind what you're trying to achieve when you went into that?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the things that excited me about the PhD as well is there were so many unknowns. We didn't, we don't really know very much at all about these birds. Mm. The problem that's happened is that where the population has declined so much, basically, People going out and doing these surveys and just returning zeros because the birds weren't there anymore. Oh, wow. And so I, I just like the idea of a challenge, but coming back to what I wanted to achieve through the thesis, basically, we didn't know because we didn't know whether we were going to find any birds. So the first six months of my project was thinking, oh, okay, well, if we find birds, maybe we can look at this and look at this. Um, if we don't find birds, maybe we can focus on noisy fryer birds and blah, blah, blah. But I guess I, I, I did luck in because, uh, 2015, the first year of my field work was a pretty good year in the grand scheme of things. And, um, on the second day of field work, I rocked up into the Cape T Valley and the first tree I stopped at, there were three birds feeding in the yellow box above <laughs> my head. So. Amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so at this point, we got into this whole idea of region honey eaters losing their song. Um, It's what exposed us to the region honey eater. It's why we, we reached out to Ross to do this episode. And in the process of
0: researching Ross, I came across one of his paper titles and it was basically about how these endangered birds are losing their vocal culture. And after episode two with Alex and the tree climbing lion culture, I just had to know what this was all about. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask because I was—I was having a look at your uh, some of the papers that you had on your uh, on the um, university page for you, and I saw that it sort of said that they're losing the, their vocal culture. I um, hmm. I, I wondered if you could explain what you mean by vocal culture.
2: Yeah, it, it, basically, it's exactly the same as, as human language. You know, the way that we communicate is by speaking English to each other, and the way that region honeyters communicate is by singing the songs that people know and recognise, yeah. Um, and what we found, even in 2015, I noticed this that there were some birds that we came across that didn't sound anything like a region honeyter at all. Um and instead they were singing the songs of other species. Um yeah. and so I just thought this is really weird and it's also really cool. And because we clocked onto it so soon, we managed to try and record the songs of all the birds that we came across. And we mapped song types in space and time. And we are basically able to show that probably as a result of population decline, we can't prove it, but what we think is happening is that where the population is now so small and sparsely distributed that the birds aren't able to learn the songs that they should be learning because they don't have any tutors. Um, so mm. it's just as humans learn to speak, songbirds will learn to sing by learning from and repeating the songs of older individuals of the same species and so what we think is happening is that some young male region honey eaters are basically leaving the nest dispersing away from their parents and then when they're in that really critical song learning period between sort of a month and a year of age Mm
3: -hmm. they don't
2: actually encounter any other region honey eaters and so they just pick up the songs of these random other birds they happen to be living within the the landscape
1: going back to the start of that project because this is how i found the work that you're doing through the press that came out around this work when it was released and going back to the start of that how who figured out that they were giving the calls of a different
2: species um well it was it was no before i started there was work that showed that they they were in inverted commas mimics. uh-huh And what we mean by mimics is that they, they kind of incorporate the songs of other species into their own vocal repertoire. So even before we started, it was known that regional artists sing the songs of other birds. Mm -hmm. But what I think, and what we've been able to show hopefully is that this isn't vocal, it's not mimicry what regional artists are doing. Um, Because mimicry is what you think of things like lyrebirds, for example. Lyrebirds are your your classic mimic and they still have their own song. What they do is they incorporate the songs of other species into their own repertoire. Mm -hmm. Right. And by kind of expanding their repertoire, making themselves sound, sing more complex songs, they are able to impress the females. And by doing that, we find that it has a fitness benefit. So basically if you're a male lyrebird, um, and you, and you incorporate the songs of all these other species into your repertoire. The female gets the horn and she's like, yeah, I'm going to mate with you. Brilliant. Happy days, more baby live birds for that particular male. What we find with region honeyeaters is that they're actually replacing their own songs, with songs of other species. Right. And this is sort of coming to the detriment of those birds because. Their songs, they're not becoming more complex, they're just becoming different, right? Yeah. And that what we found is that birds that sing different songs are less likely to be paired and less likely to nest. So there's actually a fitness cost to in inverted commas mimicry. And so we think it's basically erroneous because it has no benefit to these birds.
1: Hmm. Was there a moment before you saw that the data that you sort of suspected this was happening?
2: Yes, yes and no. So, so part of the problem, I, I had birds the first year in 2015, we had birds singing away on the Cape City River that were paired and nesting that was singing like a spiny cheats honey. So we knew that, you know, these birds singing weird songs had the ability to, to pair up and nest. But because we kind of surveyed all through the range, we can we can basically show that th- those birds were the exception rather than the rule. And that most birds that were singing these weird songs were the ones that were dotted around the edge of the range and turning up in weird places like Wollongong Botanic Gardens, for example. Um, and so, so, yeah, you know, that bird is actually a really interesting one. Um, it was a bit of a twitch for a lot of people.
1: A twitch? What is it? bit of a twitch. Uh, so I guess it just comes from twitches, which is a very British term for passionate bird watchers. It's just something that gets their engine going. That's it. <laughs> bit of a twitch means bit of a bit of a thing, bit of a turn on for a twitcher. <laughs> um,
2: and when I heard about it, the first thing I said was, Oh, what species is this is this Wollongong bird singing like? Because I almost guarantee it's not going to sound like a region honey to Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, it was singing away like a black-faced cuckoo shrine, which is just absolutely blew my mind. <laughs>
0: Now, if you're sitting there wondering, did they get the recordings for that? Bloody oath we got the recordings for that.
1: <laughs> get ready for them. <laughs> we, uh, we reached out to Ross and he provided us with a folder full of recordings of Regent Honey Eaters that get ready for a parade of songs, beginning with a normal or proper call, as Ross calls it, of a region Honey Eater from around this sort of Blue Mountains area. They vary a bit up and down the range, but this is what they should sound like in that Blue Mountains area. Very nice, very light, very nice, very light, calm, very pretty bird song, pretty bird yeah. song, right? Not, not bragging, not boasting, not being too much, just a nice, pretty bird song. Uh, this is the sound of a region honey eater trying to be a Black-faced cuckoo shrike. just jarring (laughs) (laughs) and this is what they sound like back to back okay let's get back into it
0: so how good are they at or how well do they replicate other
2: bird songs pretty bloody well you'd be surprised i mean there's times i've picked up a few birds where you you talk, you hear something and you think it doesn't sound quite right you know is that a noisy fryer bird or is it a region honey eater that's kind of pretending to be a fryer bird um so you could easily overlook a region honey eater that's singing like a different species mm-hmm. and we probably have there's there may be times where we haven't seen the bird singing and we've recorded it as something else and it was a region but yeah they're pretty good
1: does that make it hard to keep track of them and to, to find them in the field because you can't rely... Can you rely on bird calls to, to yeah, track them yeah. down? Yeah, so
2: the way we survey, we've got like, we've got about 1,300 survey sites all through the range and we basically just run around like headless chickens um, between <laughs> August and November and we survey each site for only five minutes and what we do is at the start of every survey, we play the song of a Regent to for one minute and the mm-hmm. idea is that Um, You know, if there's a bird there and it's trying to nest, then it'll respond kind of aggressively to the call, thinking that there's another male intruding on its territory, and that will enable us to detect it. I mean, there is a possibility that we miss birds because, you know, Regent Honeyses don't know that they should be responding to this song that they've never heard. But I think that that would be relatively unlikely, hopefully anyway.
0: I've got to ask, what's the, uh, what's the most, I guess, crazy other species call you've heard a Regent honey to make?
2: Oh, <laughs> mate, I can go through the list there. I mean, <laughs> the, the funniest one is the one that sounded like a noisy fry bird. Noisy fry bird is one that sounds really comical. <laughs> hey, it's us. You know what time
0: it is. <laughs> now, get ready for that tune he was just talking about.
2: <laughs> now, a
1: reminder this is what a proper. Regent Honeyeater bird song should sound like. And this is what a Regent Honeyeater that's learnt to sing from a noisy fryer bird sounds like. (laughs) And this is back to back.
0: Just a little Just different. A little different.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. And now Ross told us that one of his other favorites was uh, the Little Wattlebird. So get ready for this
1: one. <laughs> Again, a reminder the proper song. And this is what it sounds like when it's imitating a Little Wattlebird. Not even close. And this is what they sound like back to back.
0: (laughs) Now, just picture these little birds, these males, they don't really know what they're doing. They're singing their heart out trying to attract a mate. And for some reason, the wrong species just keeps showing up. (laughs) oh god
1: (laughs) uh yeah it's funny but it's it's funny in a very tragic way yeah
0: it's uh funny and sad (laughs) that's amazing sad but
2: (laughs) uh, i think that's why that story kind of took off so much is that it's sad but it's also really bloody interesting
1: yeah Mm. And in terms of the recovery process, then, I guess you're dealing with not just keeping the numbers of the birds going, but also their behaviors and culture, vocal culture going as well. What stuff are you doing to keep that culture alive?
2: Yeah. Um, so what we found included in that study is that the birds in captivity, um, they they sing very different songs to the ones that are left in the wild. Alrighty. Once more around the block we go. You know what we're doing. <laughs>
0: We got the OG first.
1: This is a captive region honey eater.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh God, <man. laughs> They just sound like they're trying so hard.
1: They're <laughs> really going for the roll. <laughs> and uh, I feel like for this one, we need it the least, but this is... What they're supposed to sound like a proper Regent Honey Eater song against the captive Regent Honey Eater song.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Too good.
1: (laughs) And yeah. It's funny and sad, but Ross says it is unfortunately having real world effects because the young males are singing the wrong songs, which means the females are less likely to come say hi, which means there's lower breeding success.
0: One of those cool, sad stories. Yep.
2: Um, and so we're a bit worried that obviously we know that song plays this really important role in in, in males kind of, you know, impressing females and maintaining breeding territories. And so if these captive juveniles or captive males are singing these weird songs, then it might a bit kind of compromise their ability to yeah, survive and breed in the wild. So what we're doing now in collaboration with Taronga Zoo, we have a PhD student, um, Daniel Appleby, and he's basically a teacher and he's trying to correct the songs of the captive juveniles in, in, in Taronga Zoo.
3: Hmm.
1: And so is, is there playing recordings involved with in that and trying to teach them um virtually had it had a call in there yeah in their yeah that's culture. exactly it
2: we've we basically made a mixtape of all the um all <laughs> the birds that i've recorded over the last five years we've made a little mixtape and it gets played to these uh, young males in their in their aviaries on kind of like you know, like a, a one minute loop every every few minutes um and the hope is that the, the juvenile males will pick up these sounds and incorporate them into their own songs we also have two two wild males were collected um, okay. brought into captivity um, just over a year ago, and those birds actually sing properly. The juveniles are actually living next to these two wild males in the hope that they can listen to them and pick, pick up their language. So this is all ongoing at the moment.
0: This is, a, uh, <laughs> I guess, a bit of a rough question, but um, do you think that they will, I guess, make it through the next – couple of decades to the end of the century. And if, if they do, do you think that their, their culture will?
2: Um, look, if I'm being brutally honest, um, and I think I came to this conclusion a few years ago that the chances of this bird surviving in the next, probably in the next 20 years, are pretty, pretty bloody slim. Um, yeah. we, the latest project that we're working on, um, little sneak peek into some upcoming science is we've done a population viability analysis basically computer simulations that model with a bit with an element of you know randomness in them what's likely to happen to the population if you plug in loads of demographic parameters that we've estimated through our research over the last five or six years Mm -hmm. um, and basically what we found is without any intervention there's almost like a over 90% probability that the, 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 birds will go extinct within 20 years. Um, we can reduce that probability through conservation actions, doing things like protect nests and obviously release the captive bred birds and hope that we can improve their fitness by doing things like, um, you know, teaching them to sing the proper songs and improving their predator awareness uh, release them in the blue mountains instead of down in Northern Victoria so that they get a chance to mix in with the, Mm -hmm. the birds that hang on, on in the wild. But ultimately what we find when we go and do these survey sites that we've been doing for the last five or six years is that there's, we haven't addressed the threats that this species is facing, you know, things like, um, degradation of habitat. Things like, you know, they, would, they were smashed by the the fires. The megafires affected their habitat. The drought really affected the habitat.
1: Hey, so just confirming the fires and drought, he's talking about are uh, that 2019-2020 uh, summer of, of Australian fires that pretty much everyone's heard about now. Um, and the drought was some of the conditions leading into that in the years before. And... If you've listened to episode one with
0: Daniela, this is the same, same bushfires that we speak about in that episode. And so Ross goes on to talk about the specific impacts the drought had on Regent honey eater habitat.
2: And we found, especially in Northern New South Wales, a lot of the trees have basically died as a result of that drought and they're actually not, they're not recovering and then, yeah, mistletoes are also really important. Um, we're finding that in, in many areas of, of our study range that, that the mistletoes are actually dying from the trees for, for, for an unknown reason. Um, and when that happens, it basically means that the regional can't breed in those areas. So
1: why, why is that? Do they use that for, for food sources or nesting or something? Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's uh, one, one species in particular is called a needle leaf mistletoe. It flowers during the breeding season. Um, and regional hunters will, will use that as a, as a nectar resource when they're breeding. Yeah, and in some stretches where we know the birds have bred regularly over the last decade, the, the mistletoe has just all died within, you know, even, even within a year. And we still don't really know why, unfortunately. But yeah, it's not great. Yeah, <laughs> bloody
0: hell. I guess, I mean, hate to keep going down the sort of dark question route, but uh, <laughs> when it's so rough and sometimes looks so bleak, how do you, I guess, how do you keep going?
2: uh ha oh. it's probably i mean i think the last I like, it was the toughest part for me was probably the first two or three years of my phd when you know you get so excited when you find birds you know you yeah. flog yourself tra- traveling tens of thousands of kilometers to find a handful of birds and you get so excited and then they lay their eggs and they're feeding chicks and then, you know, nest after nest is just eaten by something, whether that be, you know, possums, gliders, um, kookaburras, butcher birds, you know, and you just think, Oh geez, this has been happening for so long. You know, why haven't we done anything about it 20 years ago? You know, why didn't people have a good look and realize that the reason these birds, are going down the pan is is not just because they've lost all their habitat, it's because they just can't breed as well as they should be breeding. You know, yeah. Um, but I guess what keeps me going now is region is are, are the tip of an iceberg for for, for woodland birds in Australia, and so I, I guess my motivation is is more or as much now to try and come up with conservation actions that will not just benefit region honeyters, but will benefit all these other woodland birds that are kind of slowly, but surely heading in the same direction. Yeah. Like we probably will lose region honeyters, but ultimately the damage has already been done. And so what we can do is learn from those mistakes or, you know, or oversights and make sure it doesn't happen to other species that we could, we still have a better chance of saving.
3: Mm, It's
2: a.
0: I guess a, a great outlook on a very depressing situation. Yeah.
2: Mate, I also hate the idea of having to work in an office. So as long as I can do anything that will keep me outdoors, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the reason number well, two. <laughs> well, on that, on
1: that note, I guess one of the to lift the mood a bit as well. One of the questions that we do always love asking people is what their best day, you know, complete opposite. What their best day has been working with. In your case, the region honey eater. Do you have one day that stands oh, out as insane. just being a
2: highlight? Oh, look, we've had some, we've had some fantastic days doing what we do. Like we, I never take it for granted. You know, I feel so, so fortunate to be doing what I'm doing because, you know, we've, we've worked hard. Don't get me wrong. We've worked hard, but we've, we have also been lucky. Mm -hmm. Some of the most satisfying for me was there's a property in Northern Blue Mountains and, we were able to go in there and show that region honeyeaters breed in this particular property. Mm-hmm. And over the last five years, we basically removed noisy miners from from the property. Noisy miners, um, for your listeners, are another native Australian bird, but they're basically the opposite of region honeyeaters in the sense that they have um, really benefited from land clearing. They love degraded habitat, and then when they yeah, when the numbers build up, they can basically become these mobsters and chase off all the other woodland birds. And so, when we first found Regent Honeyters nesting on this particular property, uh-huh. I was watching the poor old adult Regent Honeyters trying to feed their nestlings. And in between these bouts of feeding, they were having to chase off noisy miters from the edge of the nest. And so we decided that we would implement this pest management regime to basically try and remove the noisy miners from the property and, and give the region honey eaters somewhere to breed in peace. And yeah, it's it's been really successful. and almost the entire entire place now is free of noisy miners. So awesome. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: Good to hear. I um what what I guess when you go out in the field, what, what is a what is a day in the field like looking for region honey eaters actually look like?
2: Um, we, we have survey sites dotted all through the country, mostly in the Great Blue Mountains, but also up in Northern New South Wales. And basically me and my uh, research assistant Liam Murphy, we normally, we'd probably be sleeping in a swag somewhere in you know, on the edge of a river with a little campfire the night before, and we'll get up at the crack of dawn this time of year. We'll be sort of, you know, peeling the frost off the swag and having a coffee <laughs> in the back of the. Back of the mute, and then yeah, as soon as the sun's up, we're we're down to our survey sites, playing the song of the regent honeyeater, recording all the other calls, all the other birds and their calls, um and recording any trees that might be in blossom, and um, hoping beyond hope that maybe at one of the hundred sites we we'll server that day, we might might luck into a regent honeyeater.
0: To... <laughs> I um, what, when you when you play the recordings, how close do they actually come, if they're
2: there? Yeah, um... It depends. It depends. If the birds are breeding, when, when we, when we go to that particular site, they can be really aggressive. You know, they'll come in and, you know, fly into the tree next to you and, you know, be prepared to beat up the, um, (laughs) speaker. Other times they might, if they happen to be feeding in the area, you might just get a single note call in response. And then, you know, that's when you have to be really on the ball, because if you miss that one call, you might not even realize that there's any birds there at all. So. Mm. Um, it, it, it's very, the response of Region ice is very concept, context specific.
1: Cool. Well, I think we might get into some audience questions now. And I wanted to start off with one from Dennis, who is the guest on our third episode, who's a, a ranger on of, of Kiwis down in the South Island oh, in, nice. in New Zealand. Um So he, he asked. To... Oh, cool. <laughs> um, So he wants, you mentioned mimicry earlier, but he wanted to know does it ever go the other way? Do other birds ever mimic the calls of Region Honey Eaters?
2: we have i've never had that never i've never had that yeah i would love what well, i would absolutely love it if one day i came across a lyrebird somewhere in the blue mountains that was mimicking region heights um i'm sure they probably did back in the good old days but i've never had it
0: maybe one day
2: <laughs> maybe one day
0: <laughs> dev had a question and <laughs> she she wanted to know given that that honey eaters in the name is that actually is that actually their favorite food is that what they eat <laughs> uh
2: it's it's nectar it's nectar so you it's probably not really honey per se but know, yeah, them and bees go for the same thing so
1: yeah cool I, i've got one from cassie uh or well, two actually she had two in her one question but the first one is why is it called a region honey eater and then her second one is are there any plants that people can put in their urban suburban properties that could help at all with Mm. the region, honey eater conservation.
2: So region is a consequence of their coloration. I think, um, black and black and yellow, are are kind of considered the region colors. So the region bowerbird, for example is, is, is black and yellow. Mm -hmm. So that's probably, that probably answers that question. Hey, uh, well it kind of answered that question.
1: We were not satisfied. (laughs) So we decided to go down a bit of a rabbit hole. And it turns out Regent doesn't just describe the colors of the Regent Honeyeater and the Regent Bowerbird that Ross just mentioned, but also the Regent Parrot in Australia has the same black gold, black yellow colors going on. And it's all named after this one guy, George Prince of Wales, who was the eldest son of King George III. And between 1811 and 1820, King George III became mentally unstable to rule. So his eldest son, George, Prince of Wales, took over as regent, uh, basically standing in for his dad while he was mentally unstable and then later became King George III himself between 1820 and 1830. But yeah, this is where the name comes from. It's all in honour of this guy, George, who was the Prince Regent between 1811 and 1820. And his colours were black and gold or black and yellow.
0: And that was a bit of a long walk to get there, but we like to think it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't say why they're also called honey eaters because it's kind of self-explanatory. They basically eat nectar, which is pretty similar to honey. Close <laughs> enough. Region
1: for the colors, honey for the food. Regent honey eater. There you go. Perfect.
2: <laughs> In terms of planting species, um, yeah they i mean it depends where you are in 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 their range really but um mugger iron box is a good one eucalyptus sideroxylon, big tree that's going to flower and attract loads of birds to your garden and yeah, no doubt flying foxes and all sorts of other stuff as well yeah. um if you can't plant trees you can plant things like um wattles and grevilleas and just shrubs that produce you know large amounts of nectar and if you plant those things you're going to end up deterring noisy miners as well they hate shrubs so any mm-hmm. any addition to the shrub layer is uh, is is going to be beneficial if not for region hunters but everything else apart from noisy miners
0: <laughs> good to know and this one comes from a uh, very lovely man, my dad. <laughs> um, he wanted to know, <laughs> his is more just about uh, songbirds in general, but he wanted to know, uh, do songbirds usually sing all year round or is it just when they're trying to breed?
2: Um, I think though, I think most birds will sing all year round. They'll just be, they'll put more effort into it and sing more frequently during the breeding season. Mm. Um, having said that, they a lot of birds won't sing when they're actually nesting. So region honeyeaters go completely silent when they when the females are on eggs and they're raising chicks. And so the singing occurs early in early in the season, you know, like now is the prime time, you know, sort of August, September into early October is is, is peak, peak song time for, for most of Australian songbirds. Good to know. Cool.
0: If people wanted to learn more about region honey eaters or get involved, what would be the best way for them to do that?
2: Check out our website. So we, we call ourselves the Difficult Bird Research Group. To some extent, tongue-in-cheek, but um, mm-hmm. we do also study really annoying difficult birds. So it's kind of accurate. <laughs> um, that's just difficultbirds.com. Cool. Um, and you can learn there more about region hunters. You can also access all our group's research papers. So there's no, no firewalls. We have a research output page where you can basically click on the reference and get direct access to the PDFs. So that would be good place to start otherwise bird life is the other option for something more more localized so
0: cool um and i guess if people people wanted to sort of donate would you have any groups or uh or any just people you wanted to give a shout out to
2: (laughs) there's a shameless plug we have a giving page on our own website there's a shameless plug if people (laughs) worthy of a dollar or two but um i've Kind of said to you that regent honeyeaters are probably going extinct now. So, if, you, if you're going to donate, maybe donate to uh, yeah something that's got put a better chance of surviving.
0: I'd, I'd like to think people donate more.
2: <laughs> uh, maybe,
3: maybe,
1: hopefully.
0: Okay. And I guess finally, if is there a message that you would like people to hear for regent Eaters or conservation in general?
2: I guess there's two messages because the, the the thing is, you know, whether it's through we people that l- listen to conservation news are the people that the, the preachers have already converted in the sense, you know, that, that they're people that already care and already want to know. And so, to them, the message would be, don't don't get disheartened because if anyone's should be disheartened is me. And I'm not this hard yet, yeah. yeah. So there is still hope. And even if you know we can't save Regent Hunters, we can still do good work and save other species that we might not otherwise save. And the other message for the people that you know aren't on Twitter and read the you know the Australian and the Daily Telegraph and whatever it would be, just please just give a bit more of a shit about. The natural environment because ultimately if we don't we we're gonna bite ourselves in the bum in the long term you know, it might not be for us but it will be for our kids or our grandkids so uh, um mm. the, the quicker people can see that what we're doing is not just greeny wishy-washy stuff but that the region honeyters and all these other birds are uh, indicators of healthy ecosystems then the better off everyone will be
0: i'm not gonna lie i think that might be the best sign off message we've had so far. <laughs> Definitely my favourite. We've right, only had six episodes
2: or so, so- uh, yeah. <laughs> i to done another hundred. <laughs>
1: well, I reckon, yeah, we'll, we'll probably wrap it up there. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us, Ross. No problem at all. Yeah, we really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure, guys.
0: So, episode 5 of Life on the Brink was recorded on the lands of the Turbal, Yagara and Guringai people. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded. It always was and
1: always will be Aboriginal land. A big thanks to Ross for being our guest on this Region Honey Eater episode and for letting us play those depressing yet amazing bird song recordings. You can keep up with Ross's work on Twitter under the handle at CratesRoss. If you can, please
0: follow Life on the Brink on whichever app you're listening on and leave a review if you're on an app like Apple Podcasts. Every interaction like this we get makes such a big difference to us and how many people end up seeing this podcast.
1: And the first four releases of Life on the Brink are also out wherever you're hearing this or you can also find them at lifeonthebrinkpodcast.com. Thanks to Angus bazina for getting that website up and running. Thanks to Carl Morley for our theme music. And most of all,
0: thanks to you for listening. See you next week.